0: I think I'm all wired up now. Can you hear me? Well enough? All right. We're supposed to start at 8.30, is that right? And go to 9.15. So, you may be looking at my credentials and asking, uh, what does this guy with a Master of Divinity have to do with community health? And what qualifies him to teach on mobilizing volunteers for, uh, uh, to, to leverage community health impacts. So I'll tell you just a little bit about myself, a couple of very important things. Uh, one is that I'm married to the most beautiful girl in the world, and uh, she's here with me today. Her, na- her name is Jeannie. Um, I come from Phoenix. I was born in Hollywood, California, and for about 15 years I've been working with uh, a strategy for ministry called Community Health Evangelism. And if you haven't heard about Community Health Evangelism, there will be a seminar this afternoon that's kind of an overview. Uh, But in our network, called the Global Chain Network, there are about 450 organizations in 105 countries. Um, When I was serving as the uh, International coordinator at Medical Ambassadors. Um, I know that we had mobilized about 11,000 volunteers for community health programs around the world. And when we put all 450 organizations together, I can't tell you exactly how many volunteers have been mobilized, uh, but I would guess it's uh, somewhere in the range of 30 to 50,000 volunteers are working every week. CHE is a uh, strategy that integrates community health and development with evangelism and discipleship. So when a program is mature, you will see people from the village who have been trained as community health workers going into homes and working with families. They teach about clean water and then they sanitize the drinking water, help the family sanitize the drinking water And they open the scriptures and they share about the living water. And people come to Christ and small groups are formed. And those small groups can come together to establish a new church or to build an existing church. And those community health workers report to a development committee uh, that has been trained in project management. And they're working on things like uh, water systems and roads and schools and infrastructure. And so the end result of a CHE program is that uh, communities are lifted out of cycles of poverty and disease and people come to faith in Christ. And we uh, uh, have just been privileged, I think, to be a part of this movement. And before we go any further, I'd like to give this time to the Lord. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here today and each one of us comes with open heart and open hands and asking you, Lord, to, to teach us and instruct us and equip us for that work that you have called us to do. So I ask, Father, that you would do that and that we would all leave here encouraged and uh, better equipped in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to put a matrix up. Um, This matrix came from the Externally Focused Network. And it was published in uh, a book called Externally Focused Quest by Eric Swanson. And I think that looking at this will kind of be a good introduction for us to the idea of mobilizing volunteers. Um, This survey was done with church members in North America. And what they did was they asked, how often would you be willing to volunteer? And what would you be willing to volunteer to do? And so as you look at the matrix, what you'll find is that uh, most people are willing to volunteer for a yearly uh, one-time one-off kind of an event, or uh, maybe quarterly. They would prefer to give things, maybe at Christmas or Thanksgiving, um, and to do things for others. Some uh, would be interested in uh, rehabilitation or in betterment kinds of things. Betterment might um, might be things like mentoring school children or... Uh, teaching English as a second language or teaching a seminar on how to find a job or those kinds of things. But what you find is that when the commitments get to be monthly and weekly, the number of people who are willing to volunteer thins out. And as you move up the scale from doing things for people to walking alongside of people in ways that are empowering and enabling to them and to their communities, um, it thins out again. And so I think that's a picture of the problem that we have in trying to mobilize volunteers for community health initiatives. Really um, what we're asking them to do in CHE programs around the world is to volunteer sometimes more than on a weekly basis to give four to five hours a week, working with other families, walking alongside of them in empowering ways. Some assumptions that I'm going to work from as we talk today, one is that volunteers engage in volunteer work in order to satisfy important personal goals. Uh, This sounds kind of capitalistic, right? (laughs) Uh, We're motivated by the fact that we can profit. And uh, that's true in volunteer and in in the realm of nonprofits and in in volunteering. People have reasons uh, for volunteering. And many times they are related. in In fact, I would say all the time they're related in some way, to important personal goals. And we'll talk about what those goals might be. Another assumption that I'm working from is that different people may do similar things for different reasons. So we may ask uh, some volunteers to go into a home and work with a family, and they may have a number of different motivations as they go in, and we'll look at them. Uh, They won't all all be mobilized by the same motive or the same purpose. And so there are different different reasons that people take voluntary action. Another assumption is that any one individual may be motivated by more than one need or goal. Uh, There may be a primary motivation for doing what they do. Um, But sometimes there will be multiple reasons, multiple motivations, uh, multiple needs or goals uh, that are satisfied by their volunteer efforts. And then another assumption is that successful volunteer recruitment and retention is tied to the fulfillment of the volunteer's personal goals. So if we're going to mobilize people as volunteers... It's going to be because they are invested some way in what we are doing, not because we've asked them to do it. Well, maybe there would be some that would do that. But um, if it's sustainable, it's because of some purpose or goal or uh, benefit uh, that comes back to them. Uh, What are different motives for volunteering? Uh, this is kind of a North American study, but I think that it has application generally. Uh, one motive for volunteering is career. I volunteer because I want to increase my prospects for a job. Another reason for volunteering is I want to learn new skills. I want to gain understanding um, I want to practice what I've learned and get better at it. So I become competent in in a certain area. Another reason for volunteering is enhancement. Through this process of volunteering, I gain respect, self-esteem, self-confidence. In some way, it improves uh, or enhances my own feeling about myself. Another reason for volunteering is protective. Um, Some of us feel guilty because we have so much and they have so little. And so we relieve that guilt by going and doing something for them. Um, Or, and I think that this is really something for us to look at when we're talking about mobilizing volunteers for community health programs, I may have problems that are solved by my volunteering. Uh, And we'll look at how that might happen later. Uh, Social. uh, Some people are motivated by getting along with others, meeting the expectations of the group, uh, making friends. Uh, Those are all reasons... um, And here's the one that I think we all hang on to in our hearts, uh, values. Uh, People uh, volunteer because of concern for the welfare of others or contributions that they can make to society. Uh, They volunteer because they love God and they love their neighbor. Uh, And so those are some of the motives for... Volunteering. And here's some interesting thoughts about um, age and volunteer motivations. As age increases, career and understanding motivations decrease. Uh, Younger people are thinking about building their careers and their resumes, and uh, they want to get out there and and do something that's going to give them a prospect for a better job or um, build a skill that 's going to make them more useful to an employer somewhere down the road, or put something on their resume but as as they get older, that becomes less of less of a motivation and so if we 're thinking about motivating young people, uh, we might be looking at internships and you know these kinds of things as as things that uh, uh, that they would want to be involved in, as age increases, social volunteer motivation also increases. Um, they, uh, as they get older, they um, they volunteer for social reasons. Uh, and it was interesting that age does not contribute to the prediction of enhancement protective. And values volunteer motivations. Um, People of all ages want to see their own problems solved. They want to build their self-esteem. And they want to live in a way that's consistent with their values. And so those things seem to be kind of untouched by age. I want to tell you a story and then ask you to listen as you hear this story, for motivations. What has motivated these people uh, to do what they have done? I went into a village in Uganda where they had a CHE program. I came in a four-wheel drive um, driven there by the regional coordinator who had, or the country coordinator who had been involved with many villages across the country And when we got out of the car, the the village was waiting for us, Um, and we got out, and you've been in these kind of situations. There was a procession up to the church at the top of the hill, and the whole village gathered inside the church, and they put us up in the front and surrounded us with dignitaries. And so... Um, Over here on my right were the district uh, officials, political leaders in the district, and the religious leaders in the district. And then over here on my left were two groups of people. One of them was the Che Committee. Those were the people that had been chosen by the community to manage projects for them. And they were working on projects like water and sanitation and latrines and these kinds of things. And next to them was another group of people. In fact, I think this was the committee here. And next to them was another group of people uh, we call Chase, Community Health Evangelists. Uh, they are the, the volunteer health workers. Now, both of these groups of people represent Volunteers. The committee does their work as volunteers representing the community without pay. The community health workers also that go into the homes do their work as volunteers without pay. And so um, these women are women who are going into the homes and working with the families, teaching about immunization and helping get the children immunized and teaching about nutrition and helping them plant kitchen gardens and having bible study and leading them to christ and forming groups and and discipling them uh, and so then right in front of me was another group of 53 children now there were other children in this So it's this little thing. Let's see if I can put it here. Uh, There were other children in the community, but right in front of me were 53 children. And it it was a mystery to me. Why were these children there? And then the community began to tell their story. And what had happened is uh, these women uh, who were trained as community health workers started going into homes and working with families. And in the process, they came face to face with AIDS orphans, some of them living in child-led homes, uh, some of them living with uncles or aunts or grandparents. And these AIDS orphans, I'm not sure what to do about that noise, so I'll just keep talking. <laughs> um, the, these these um, AIDS orphans, many times, they're the s- stepchildren in a family, right? Um, is, it, is it the mic? I think I need some technical assistance. Okay. let me see if it's this. I'm trying to turn it off, but it won't it won't turn off either. It's it's demonic here. That's better. That's better.
1: All right. Is that working?
0: These AIDS orphans are often um, stepchildren in homes because they've been shuffled off to aunts and uncles. And so they end up dropping out of school um, and they do the chores while the other kids go to school and so forth. And as the Chase started visiting in the homes, as these health workers started visiting in the homes, they, uh, they began to feel that God wanted them to do something to help these children. And so they got together as a group, and they prayed, and they asked the Lord what he wanted them to do. Uh, and they, they reached into their own pockets first, and they tried to pull together enough money to buy school supplies to put these 53 children back in school. They couldn't come up with enough money out of their own pockets, and so they did some fundraising. And eventually they gathered enough funds to buy the materials that were needed, the school supplies that were needed to get these children back in school. And then they called the children all together on a Tuesday night, and they fed them, and they played games with them, and they taught them Bible stories, and they sang, and they gave them their school supplies, and they got got these children back in school. And then as they visited in the homes, they were able to monitor the situation, and see what was happening with the different uh, children. And every week, they would meet together for Bible study, and they would feed them a meal that they prepared, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, I stood there and looked at that, and I thought to myself, this is the solution to AIDS orphans in Africa. Uh, We can't build enough orphanages uh, on that continent to keep these orphans. And if we do, we'll probably create more orphans. And what we're doing won't be sustainable. But what they had done was they had come around their own AIDS orphans and found a way to care for them. As we finished up our time, we walked out of the church these children came around me and they all grabbed me. Just, they just grabbed my clothes somewhere. Everybody had a hand on me. And they started spinning in a circle like this and singing, If you're happy and you know it, say amen. <laughs> if you're happy and you know it, say amen. And I just looked in those children's eyes and I could see the tr- transformation that had taken place, the, the hope and, uh, uh, and, and the vision and, and, and the love that they were feeling and the acceptance. And I've been around Africa and I've seen the stigma. I've seen the kids on the streets. I've seen uh, the isolation and the alienation. And so th- this was something very uh, special that was happening here. Now, as I tell that story, what did you, what kinds of things did you hear the volunteers, what, what motivated these volunteers Which motives were at play? It's almost like their mother
1: instincts had gone beyond their own children. Okay. They these children too, as a group. I don't
0: know. Yeah, so, so there, was, uh, th- th- there was some values there. There was concern for the welfare of those children. Yeah. What else motivated them? They were solving a problem. Yeah, I'm assuming that they recognized that this was not just those children's problem. It was affecting the families and it was affecting the communities that they lived in. And they had said, this is our problem. What else motivated them? And so I think the CHE program had kind of created some expectations, that that their responsibility was to care for the health of these families, and the children were part of those family units. All right, what else? Because there was no dependency created
1: in them. They were volunteers. They weren't looking for something from outside.
0: So there was a sense of dignity in what they were doing, right? They had, they had come to understand, I am, in the, I am made in the image of God, and I'm a, a steward of resources. And instead of waiting for somebody from the outside to come and save, they were taking action. And I think that goes to self-esteem and self-confidence and self-improvement. And some of those kinds of concepts. What else motivated them? Yeah. I have a yeah. Did you
1: supply money to them after the fact? Did they get a like was it completely not you did not help any of these orphans after the fact
0: that they did this? No. They did this entirely on their own.
1: <coughs> With their own
0: resources. Yes. When they came, when they were recruited by the committee, uh, there were some Muslims and uh, many unbelievers in the group. Uh, by this time, most of them were believers. And so they were, they were motivated by their love for God and their love for the Lord. Yeah. And I, I, I think, too, I have seen um, women in... Um, living in huts, raising children, struggling day to day with n- no self-esteem um, and, and a sense of struggle, but not much sense of hope, uh, come alive when they realize not only is there something that I can do for my family to protect them from disease, but I can share this with others. And so you can see in their faces um, that they're growing. And often what happens with these in is that they gain respect in the village and sometimes they're elected then to, to political positions and other things. So there's, there's, there's even some career advancement in, in an unusual way out there that's going on. So I want to ask you another question. What's wrong with these assumptions? This assumption Uh, I was studying at Oxford and uh, presenting a uh, thesis uh, idea to a a group um, about volunteerism. And the first objection to a study on volunteerism was, you can't expect the poor with no money and no income to volunteer What's wrong with that assumption?
1: The evidence proves otherwise all over the world.
0: Yeah, well, the the evidence proves otherwise, yes. But the poor have all those kind of needs that anybody else does, career and understanding and enhancement
1: and protection and social values needs. The fact that they don't have money doesn't keep them from having those needs and those motivations.
0: Yeah, because money is not the only motivation. Yeah. Now yeah, we, we we are a materialistic culture, and we think that money is the answer. And money is not always the answer, uh, but that's what's wrong with that assumption. Yes. Uh, I, I think
1: that they also neglected that uh, people bring more than money to the table. but mm-hmm. They bring time, and they bring a talent.
0: Yes. What's wrong with this assumption? The work will not pour if they're not paid. Same thing, right? Um. Or another assumption, asking the poor to volunteer is exploitation. Have you heard that? There's
1: yeah. a lot of guilt in the statement. That person that makes that statement is yes. very guilty of their own position and lack of involvement. Yeah. Yeah, and if you are asking them to volunteer to do something for me and my program,
0: uh-huh. then
1: it could be seen as exploitation. That's if they right. to volunteer to address that God has laid on their, heart, in their context for their people. About that. No, that's right.
0: Especially if we're and that's right. Do you think this statement is true or false? The benefits of holistic community health and development can only be sustained by volunteer action. Why? If you say it's true, why is it true?
1: The members of the community are the only ones who can do some of the fundamental things that must be done mm-hmm. for sustainable community holistic health. So, no outsider can do it too or
0: for them. Let's be specific. Let's talk about water. If they don't sacrificially buy into it, it's not going to happen. But let's think about the benefits of clean water and the behaviors that have to change in order for the community to have access to clean water um, and to drink clean water. Um, You know, if it's boiling the water or filtering the water or... um, carrying the water in a clean container, or whatever it is. Those are actions, voluntary actions, taken by people. And the only way that those actions can be sustained is by volunteer action. Our money will not be there to make them use the clean water after we give it to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: I, I saw a situation where a $15,000 water system was put in a disaster situation in New Delhi not weeks before, and it wasn't money. And the women in the community started talking. They said, We need to gather up some money to buy the fuel. Mm-hmm. It wasn't much money, and they weren't asking us for it, but they said, We need. But, you know, the water wasn't having any
0: effect. Yeah. How many of you who've worked out in the field have seen? Wells that are broken and not being used. All right. We, we, can all, we can all tell the story. That's proof that the benefits of community health and development can only be sustained by volunteer action. The work of community health is the work of mobilizing volunteers. What about this one? Only volunteerism can turn projects in scattered rural villages into movements that sweep the countryside. Is that true or false? Why?
1: Not money to pay people to the number of people that need to be paid to make it a
0: movement. Yeah, we're not going to stand outside every door and say, Hey, if you'll drink that filtered water, I'll pay you. (laughs) And we're not going to be able to pay for for wells in every place and so forth. The only way that we're going to see a movement that sweeps the countryside and a cure that runs faster than the disease is through the mobilization of volunteers. I think in our MPH programs, we don't talk enough about participatory processes, and about community mobilization. But those are essential to community health impact. Um, Any of you read from a man named Robert Chambers? He writes in the area of international development. He talks about an old professionalism and a new professionalism in international development. And what he says is the old professionalism is we train people in the university. uh, We send them out to do a a needs assessment. They come back and blueprint a plan, raise money, uh, and then set up this vertical program where they deliver a service to the people. And we've been doing that for 75 years And we're failing to alleviate poverty. So what is the problem? The problem is it's outside initiative. It's outside money. We are not mobilizing volunteers. We're delivering services. And in the process, instead of empowering and enabling people, we create dependencies. And expectations that the solutions to our problems have to come from the outside. So what is the new professionalism? It's flexible processes. It's learning by the poor instead of learning about the poor. It's bottom-up and decentralized rather than top-down and vertical. I have trouble raising money for my community health evangelism programs. You know why? Because people want to give to a well or they want to give to something tangible They want to know, if I give this money, you're going to use it for that. So I tell them, if you give me this money, I'm going to send trainers into a community to sit with the community and listen. And the community is going to decide what their priorities are and what they want to work on. Um, And so I can't tell you what's going to come out at the other end. Try to raise money for that. But if we don't do it that way, we're failing to mobilize volunteers. And what we're doing is not sustainable. Because the benefits of community health and development are only sustained by volunteer action. So we need to be thinking about empowering and about local initiative. And here's another thought I'll get to you in a minute, Mike. Here's another thought. Um, Our our top down vertical programs are often narrow and uh, single sector solutions. I refer to them as siloed. Right. But the problem is that problems are not siloed. Problems are complex. Right. And so there was a study done in China. Uh, in, the, in the target area, 60% of the income of the abject poor was being used to buy medicines for diseases that were preventable. Well, the organization that did the study was thinking about going in and doing microfinance and giving people loans to set up a business. So the question was raised if I give them a loan to set up a business and their child gets sick, what happens? They spend the money to get the child well, and now they're in a worse situation than they were before because now they're in debt to me. So if, if our solutions are siloed and not multisectoral, we're not going to see the, the lift out of poverty that we're, that we're looking for. But so many times our top-down vertical solutions are I'm going to give them a well, I'm going to do. Um, and what, what we need are more integrated um, solutions, which requires that the people working with the community be generalists rather than specialists. And I'll let you hang on to that one. What do you want to say, Michael?
1: Just underlying the distinction between the old and new professionalism and a lot of what we're talking about is a fundamental assumption about the dignity and the capacity of all people, including the poor, mm-hmm. to be agents in their own transformation. That's right. And if we if we fundamentally do not believe that they have that capacity, then the vertical, top-down, commanding approach is the only way to do it, because they're too stupid or uh, totally lacking the motivation to engage in anything like
0: that. That's right. And... If if we think of them as victims who have no resources and can't do anything for themselves, we are not seeing them through the eyes of our Lord. Because God has made them not to be victims. He made them in the image of God and gave them what? Dominion. He made them to be stewards of resources, not victims of circumstance. And the problem is that when we see them as victims and we think we have to deliver the solution without their participation, then we are are reinforcing their uh, lack of dignity and taking away their vocation. We are not seeing them as people in the image of God and stewards. We're telling them by our actions they are victims. And That's why I think this new professionalism is something very consistent with what God would want for our work with the poor. And if we take that out of the realm of international development and we put it in the realm of community health, it's the same thing. People have to participate in their own uh, well-being, their own good health, uh, in the same way they have to participate in development so the idea is of the new professionalism is that people are subjects of development not objects they have freedom then and a voice in decision making processes instead of the university trained people deciding what their needs are and what services are going to be delivered they have a voice in Assessing the needs and choosing priorities and deciding what's going to be done in their communities. They have dignity. They recover their vocation as stewards of resources. And they become valued members of the community. And they have hope and a vision for a better future. I'm going to tell you, how much time do I have? About five minutes? um, Let me tell you another story in Central Asia. When we went to Central Asia, the elders there said, unless you have been sent by, in in this community said, unless you have been sent by God, you can't solve our problem. Their problem was, they were apricot farmers and their apricot trees had been barren uh, for six years. And so our team sat with them and they knew nothing about apricot trees or how to solve the problem. So they they asked the farmers, what's the problem? The farmers said, the problem is the gypsy moth. Well, tell me what you know about the gypsy moth. What about the life cycle of the gypsy moth? Well, the gypsy moth lays its eggs in the dirt and then the eggs hatch and the caterpillars crawl across the ground and they crawl up the trunk of the trees and they eat the leaves. And so in the course of the dialogue, they asked them, well, how, how could we stop the caterpillars from crawling up the tree? Um, how could we stop the eggs from hatching? And they came up with some simple solutions. They tied cotton cloth around the trunks of the trees. Um, and then when the caterpillars crawled across the ground and up the trunk of the tree, they got caught in the cotton cloth and the children went out and smashed the, the caterpillars in the morning. And... Um, and they sent the children out to find the egg sacs and, and so forth. Um, and the question was asked, well, what other resources do you have? Is there anybody else that you know that could help you? Well, there's a Department of Agriculture and there's an agronomist in the city. Maybe he could help us. And they went and got him and he got some uh, insecticides. And the miracle was that with, within a year, the trees recovered. Now, this to them was not just an agricultural problem. It was an economic problem. It was a social problem because more than 300 men had left uh, the village to go find work in Russia. Um, it, was a social, it was a social problem because w- women were left behind to take care of children without adequate resources and alone. Men were finding second families in, in Russia. And to them, it was a spiritual problem as well. They thought that they had been cursed By Allah. And so, when I came to the community, they took me to meet the school teacher there, probably because he was the the only guy, the principal of the school, probably because he was the only guy that spoke English. And uh, as I stood in front of him um, and we talked, he said to me, Sir, there are many uh, stones in uh, Tajikistan but our hearts are not stone. There are many rivers in Tajikistan, but our hearts flow like rivers with love for you. And I felt moved in that moment to pray. And I knew that this would put a lot of things at risk, but, and and I'm a Baptist guy, but I, you know, I I felt this need to pray. So I, I prayed and I said, I asked him first, I said, do you mind if I pray in Jesus' name? And he said, no. And I said, Lord, I just want to thank you for pouring out your blessing on these people and for revealing yourself to them. And I pray you'll continue to reveal yourself to them and continue to pour out your blessing on these people. And as I turned to walk away, there was a woman in the room who had been changed as a a, a perinatal specialist. She was a che working in homes with women who were pregnant around their pregnancy. And she did some things that were totally counterculture. She grabbed me. And she shook me like this. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, sir, I just want you to know we serve the same God. Now, now the question I want to ask you is, what, what did these volunteers, looking at these, looking at these steps, let's say, in a, in in a community health or development program, what did the volunteers do? Were they involved in needs assessment? Were they involved in planning? Were they involved in resource acquisition? Were they involved in management? Were they involved in implementation? Could they take what they had learned and multiply or diffuse it uh, Could they take it to the next village and help the next village that's got a problem with a gypsy Um, moth? And they were also involved in evaluation. This is the new professionalism. Not outsiders doing the needs assessment and delivering services, but insiders doing the needs assessment, the planning, the resource acquisition, the management, the implementation, the prioritization, um, everything else—it belongs to them. And what you'll find is, when it's their program, when there's local ownership, then um, they will volunteer. It's time for me to quit. Here's what what I think are some keys to mobilizing volunteers in a che program: new matrices. Um, And Jeannie is going to give you a handout, and you'll see some of the outcomes of a CHE program, things that we're looking for. They're not what you would expect. Uh, We need local ownership, local resources, building capacity through training, participatory learning processes, transferable concepts, replicable small-scale activities, and integration. I wish I had time to talk about each one of those, but I don't. Come to the Chay seminar this afternoon, and we'll deal a little bit more with these. Um, here's something else that you might take with you. Managing transformational change. What is required to have a successful uh, community health and development project? You need vision, skills, motivation, resources, and an action plan. If you don't have vision, but you have skills, motivation, resources, and action plan, you end up with confusion. If you have vision, but no skills, you end up with anxiety. If you have vision and skills, but no motivation, you end up with gradual change. If you have vision, skills, motivation, But no resources, you have a frustrated team. And if you have vision, skills, motivation, and resources, but no action plan, you get a false start. And so if you're thinking about empowering your community health volunteers for success, these are the kind of things you need to give to them. Thank you for allowing me to share with you. And I'll hang out up here if you have some questions.